Good morning, everybody. We're going to be in the book of Jeremiah this morning. If you brought your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to be in verses 31 through 34. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. There's probably also a pew Bible somewhere around you if you would like to read out of one of those. Um, So we are starting a new series this morning, but before we get into that, um, let me public service announcement. Tax time is upon us. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I don't have somebody from the IRS sitting back in the booth or something that's going to come and bust you or encourage you to put in your taxes if you haven't already. But I'm sure all of you know uh, that that time is pressing upon us. Some of you have probably already got your return in the bank. Um, some of you maybe are waiting on it. That's the position we're in right now. Uh, or maybe you are scrambling for the deadline uh, to get done in the next couple of weeks before April the 15th shows up. Uh, or maybe you file an extension because you don't have all that ready yet. But um, regardless of that fact, you've definitely thought about it. Yeah? Uh, you've thought about that process. Um, that is something that I have for the entirety of my time in ministry, outsourced to someone else, tax preparation. Um, I pay a professional to do it. Tried to do it one time, really, uh, before we then hired a professional that year. Um, Thought we were going to get money back and had to pay like a couple thousand dollars in. So that was awesome. So from now on, I made sure that I was going to get somebody else to help me along with that uh, so that we didn't make that same mistake. Again, there's just some things that I know I'm not gifted to do. And handling numbers like that, and, and it's kind of complicated when it's in ministry and, and just that whole thing. I would rather get someone who is an expert in it. Can I get an amen at getting an expert to do something that you don't know how to do, right? It's the same reason why I hire a mechanic when my car is broke. Same reason why I have the cable guy come and install cable if I want cable. Same reason why I have an IT guy come and fix internet problems if I have an internet problem. Because I want an expert in whatever field uh, that I have a need, not necessarily my own amateur abilities. I'm willing to pay someone if I know it's going to be done correctly. Have you ever come to that point in in something that you've tried to do, try to accomplish in your life, where you came basically to the end of yourself, where you realized, I cannot do this thing? Maybe it was math homework when you were a student. You got to a problem or you got to a certain kind of equation or a certain element within algebra or physics or trig or, or something even calculus more advanced than that, and, and, and you just couldn't, no matter how hard you tried on your own and read the book over and over again, you couldn't fit it into your brain. You couldn't make sense of it, and you had to find somebody else, somebody in your family, maybe a tutor, maybe a teacher from high school, if like you're in college and you run into something, maybe you call somebody back from high school and you, you find an expert to figure out what that is. Or maybe if you've ever tried to build something, and those of you who have had little children, you know what this is like, right? When you, you buy something from the store, like a crib, and it has all the instructions and you're trying to put it together and you can't find a piece or you have extra pieces uh, when you're done and you just kind of come to that, like, I had to miss something. Something is wrong. This isn't right. I kind of I need this thing to, to work well because it's going to hold my infant child and my prized possession in all of life. So I want to make sure that this thing is Constructed correctly, so I'm going to call my dad, or I'm going to call Paul Pappen, or Greg Fireball, or I'm going to call somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, so that they can maybe help talk me through this, uh, and we can make sure that this is done correctly. We come to the end of ourselves sometimes is when we finally get to the point that we're ready and willing to ask for help, to ask for assistance from somebody who knows more than we do. There is this myth in our world, especially in our 
do-it-yourself culture of a self-made man or a self-made woman, that we can figure things out on our own, that we can be an island unto ourselves, be completely self-sufficient where we don't need anyone else, but we can get everything we need done on our own. And really, with the advent of the internet, you can kind of argue that that's leaning on other people, but even more so now, people can look up videos and instructions online, and there is this kind of building myth that you just don't need to ask another person, another human being face-to-face for help. I would argue, though, and I think this is a biblical argument, that there is no such thing as self-sufficiency. There's no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. We could argue that from a very theological basic standpoint that we are all created in our mother's wombs by the God who knit us together there, by the God who breathed a life into Adam, by the God who constructed Eve out of Adam's rib, by the God who built us and built everything that exists in this world. We could certainly argue it from that perspective as well. We can also argue the fact that our mothers and fathers brought us into this world, that there are people along the way who put things into us, whether it was the knowledge of teachers or whether it was the integrity of someone that we looked up to. Uh, There are people who poured into us and made us in part who we are today. There is no such thing as self-sufficiency. And we see that, again, most clearly in the gospel story most clearly in the biblical narrative, that we cannot do this on our own. We have a whole testament called the Old Testament, over half of the Bible that's compiled that you have in front of you now if you have it open, that is an example or a testimony to the fact that we cannot figure it out on our own, that when we're left to our own devices, we will not be obedient enough, we will not be good enough, we will not be moral enough to earn God's favor or to somehow find enlightenment and salvation on our own. And we are desperately in need of someone who will point us to a better way, someone who will walk a better way for us. And this is the story that we get to celebrate in this coming season of Easter, that there is one who stood in our place. There is one who did what we could not ever do and did it perfectly and fully for our sake. This is the story of the Christ who came to save us, live for us, die for us, and give us the power of the resurrection. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to look at this story, particularly through the lens of Old Testament prophecy. Over the last several years that, we've been, that I've been here, we've picked a particular gospel writer, and we've kind of walked through that gospel writer uh, with uh, the Easter story. Uh, and now we're going to take it a different direction, and we're going to look at the, the Easter story through prophecy. That means we're also going to dive into the gospels, in case you're wondering, because that's where the prophecy is fulfilled as we think about the story of Christ's death and resurrection. I wonder sometimes if we ever really stop during this season or any season, it doesn't have to be a season, but if we ever stop and think about where we would be, what our lot would be, what our hope would be, if we did not have this story to tell, if we did not have the story of the God who came to us, came for us, died for us, and beat death and left it behind in an empty grave If we did not have that story to tell, what would our hope be? What would our futures look like? What would today look like? What would our own inability, where would that leave us if we did not have the Easter story to tell? But we do have that story to tell. 
and tell it we should, and tell it we must, and tell it we can, and we should enjoy every time we get to tell this story and hear this story, because it is the story of hope and life beyond this one, but also within this one. It is a story that when we come to the end of ourselves, and when we realize that we cannot do this on our own, it is a story that tells us there is a better way, and his name is Jesus. And that's what I want you to hear this morning. There is a better way than what the world tells us about how we should live. There is a better way than trying to muscle this and figure this out on our own and leaning on our own devices. There is a better way, and that is a new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what the prophet Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah 31, looking forward to what God is going to do in Jesus to what God is going to do through his blood sacrifice and through his resurrection and the opportunity that we will have to live in this new way, this new reality. So before we dive into Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, we're gonna pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for coming to us through your son, Jesus. God, we know we don't deserve the sacrifice that you took upon yourself for our sake on the cross, yet we rejoice in the fact that you chose to give it to us, to give yourself to us. And God, as we think about that and, and, and read about that and worship with this in mind over the coming weeks, and really every time that we gather, God, may you remind us of where we would be without you, but also where we are with you. God, we thank you for giving yourself for us to crucify our sin, to remove death from us. And God, we thank you. We cannot thank you enough for what you have done for us. God, the, the words that we sang in worship, the songs that we lifted to you, God, is, is not close to enough to tell you how much you mean to us and what you have done for us. But God, we thank you for the opportunity to give a little something back in that way. God, remove distraction from our midst this morning. God, help us praise you. Help us remember your sacrifice. God, help us rejoice and find hope in it today. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The prophet Jeremiah writes these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of the Lord after those days, declares, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. One thing that hopefully as you're reading through this that might jump out at you is the, a, 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 a phrase that's repeated over and over again by Jeremiah where he says, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. He says it four times, I believe. If you go and you read through that. Now, 
Prophets say that something like that often. Thus saith the Lord, declares the Lord, something along those lines to show that they are not just speaking on their own behalf, but they believe that God is speaking through them. And when it's repeated over and over again like that, it just draws extra importance to this section of the prophecy, that this is directly from God. It's, of course, all of it is, but this, there is something different about this, this prophecy, that it is reaching much further forward than a lot of what Jeremiah has to say. A lot of what Jeremiah has to say has to deal particularly with the people who are in captivity, who, are, who, are, who have just gotten kicked out of their homeland, uh, everything has fallen apart for them, and, and they're looking for a hope to return back. A lot of what Jeremiah has to say is along those lines, and this is too to some degree, but it is also extra important in that it reaches forward. Some scholars say this is the central prophecy in all of the book of Jeremiah. And then it tells us something about not just the restoration of Israel, but also the restoration of all mankind through this new covenant that Jeremiah prophesies about, this new covenant. So what is the old covenant? If there's a new, there has to be an old. Of course, he kind of spells that out within this, uh, this, this, this scripture. Uh, it is the law. It is the law given by Moses, the, the Mosaic covenant, the law that Moses received on Mount Sinai from God that he then delivered to the people. And we know if you, or if you read through the story of the Old Testament, you know that the people were not able to keep this covenant, all of the laws that Moses was given. And again, this isn't something that God did to be mean, to be meticulous and trying to make them obey little things. No, it was a, it was a way for, to, for them to know that they were right with God, for them to have a path to get right with God, to be obedient to these laws. And so God gracefully extended them this opportunity. And time and time again, they failed to keep the covenant. Now, we know that God did not, as you hear the way that Jeremiah explains it, or God through Jeremiah explains it, is that the people did not, they broke the covenant, even though God was their husband. In other words, he was faithful to the relationship. He was doing his part. He was doing what he ought to do, and Israel and Judah both, but the people of God walked away from their part of the covenant and therefore broke it. The Hebrew word there kind of connotes like shatters, annuls. Um, that it's, it's, it's an agreement that no longer stands in a way because the people walked away from it. They decided they didn't want that covenant anymore. And so now God is saying through Jeremiah that there is a new covenant coming. Again, this covenant was given by a man named Moses, and this covenant was external. It was things that they had to do in order to earn God's favor in a way, in order to earn God's forgiveness, sacrifices that they had to make ways in which they needed to be obedient. It was written down on tablets. It was recorded from the outside, expected to then go inward from there and change the person. And we see through the story of the Old Testament, through the story of the people of God, both of the northern and the southern kingdoms, that the people were at the end of themselves and the Old Covenant. It wasn't working. It wasn't God's fault wasn't the law's fault. Paul is very clear about this in his letters. It's not the law that failed, but it's the people of God that failed to keep this law of God. And so they had reached the point where it was painfully obvious that they were incapable of doing this on their own. So incapable were they of being obedient to God that they sinned so long, they went so long in the wrong direction that God finally decided that the way to fix the problem was to send an evil foreign empire to come and take them over, to use them as his means of judgment upon his very own people. That's where we sit 
That's the context in which Jeremiah writes. The people of God had failed to keep the graceful covenant, the graceful law of God, to the point that they were no longer allowed to live in their own land, which was the beginning of the promise that God made with them. The broken covenant resulted in judgment. You see, the old covenant shows that we cannot be good enough. We cannot be good enough. Now, here's something that can happen, and I say this often, and I'm preaching to myself. Maybe that's the reason why I say it so often. Here's something that can happen when we talk about things like the resurrection and the crucifixion and grace. Is we can think, well, I've heard that before. Yeah, I know that I can't be good enough. I, I know that's the case. But we can have that frame of mind we can have that logic in our brains, and then maybe, maybe I'm, this is just me and I'm putting it on all of you, but I'll let you decide that. Because what I sometimes do is I know this to be the case up here, and then tomorrow I'm going to go live as if it all depends on me. Anybody else in that boat? Or if I fail, I feel like I've let myself down, I've let my family down, I've let the church down, and I've let God down as if he was leaning on me in the first place that I have let everyone else, including the creator of the universe, down through my own inaction or wrong action. And I'll tell myself and I'll preach that I cannot be good enough. Like the word tells us that I'm incapable of earning God's salvation, incapable of saving myself. Not only do I know that that, that that is true, that that proposition is true, but I've seen it in reality because I've read the pages of the Old Testament. I've read it how much of a failure the people of God were. Even the best ones, even the heroes of the faith. Have you read Genesis lately? Those guys, they had some awesome things about them, but man, did they mess up in huge ways sometimes. And the central hero of the Old Testament is who? Biblical students out there. The central hero of the Old Testament is King David, right? who who sinned in one of the most glorious ways, one of the most glorious fashions, and not only committing adultery with a married woman, but making sure that in order to keep that quiet, sending her husband into battle to die and not have to worry about it anymore. What a guy, right? Something we all want to aspire to be. Yet these are the central heroes of the Old Testament. So I've seen it spelled out in history. I've seen it spelled out in the own people in my life that I look to. There's every point in a young person's life where you realize that even your heroes fail sometimes. You know what I'm talking about. And when you have that moment, you can make one of two decisions of, oh, everything must be lost. Like, I can't trust anybody. I can't trust anything. I need to abandon my faith because everybody is a failure. Or you come to the point that, okay, nobody's perfect. We're all following this in a sense that we're all works in progress, and we're all pursuing what God has called us to. And so I encourage you to slow down as we read a line like that one, because the old covenant shows us that we cannot be good enough. And so don't just let that be some logic thing, but quit living like you can be good enough. Now, I'm I'm not saying you shouldn't try to be good. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to be moral and do well. But quit living, not just thinking, quit living as if your salvation depends upon your action. Because guess what? When you live like your salvation depends upon your action, all of a sudden the pressure becomes real, the guilt becomes deeper, and suddenly you find yourself wallowing in sin. Why? 
Because it's happened over and over and over again. When we live like it's up to us, we realize very quickly we don't have what it takes. And then where is the hope? Where is the hope when we come to the end of ourselves if we live like it's all up to us? Now, again, there's so much that Paul has to say about this push and pull, this back and forth. It doesn't mean that we should just let sin abound. I'm not saying anything like that. We should try with everything that we have. But when we fail, let it not be a point that pushes us to say, oh, no, it's all loss. Instead, let it push us back into the grace of Jesus because the old covenant shows us that we cannot be good enough. This new covenant, though, it's different. It's not external written on tablets. It's internal written on our hearts, Jeremiah says, our hearts and our minds. The motivation for obedience doesn't come from some external rule, but rather from some internal rule, some internal motivation. Instead of applying a rule from the outside into us of just trying to be obedient to something on a tablet or something on paper, instead we have Jesus within us. We have the Holy Spirit within us literally changing us from the inside out. Jesus changes us from the inside out. Here's what the new covenant means. It means that you don't just have to, you don't just get to be obedient to the rule. You get to be changed by the law of Christ. You're not just the same person doing different stuff. You are a completely new creation. What Christ does to us is that he doesn't just help us be obedient to the rule. Here's the joy of it. He helps us rejoice in being obedient to the law. He helps us find joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment and purpose through changing and being obedient to him. Have you seen that work in your own life where it becomes less about, here's an example. Oh, I got to go to church this morning. Oh, it's, you know, I got to get up early, especially if you're here in the, in the early service. I got to go to Sunday school or I got to show up on Wednesday night. Maybe there was a point in your life, and maybe today is that point. I don't know. Maybe there was a point in your life where that was what church was for you. It was just oh, this thing I got to do because, well, that's how I earn God's favor, right? How many times have you heard somebody that's living in sin or, or, or having difficulty in their life? I got to get back in church. I got to get back in church as if that is going to fix the problem. I've got to get back at church. Here's what they're basically saying. I've got to go surround myself with other sinners so that I'll stop sinning. It's basically what they're saying when they say, I've got to go to church. That's going to fix it. As if that alone has the power to fix the problem. So sometimes we live in that way, don't we? But what Christ does in us is that at some point in your life, hopefully, something begins to change. Where maybe sometimes you still do it out of obligation. You're never perfect. But something begins to change where you actually find joy in the community of believers. What a novel idea. That you actually find peace surrounded by people who proclaim and live according to the same gospel that you do. Where you find belonging in the group that you're a part of. Where you find Joy as the voices of other people around you singing praises to God raise, though they be imperfect, that it is a joy to do what used to be a job. This is the way that the new covenant is new and is better than the old. It is not an external motivation. 
of I have to do this so that I can get this. No, it is I have been changed from the inside out so I get to do these things. It is something that starts from the inside and then comes out, not starting from the outside, hoping that it gets in. Jesus changes us from the inside out, and he does it himself. There's no mediator needed. You can see in the prophet Jeremiah, he talks about how no longer will they go to their neighbor and and try to know, but each one will know. They all will know. In other words, it's not going to be waiting on some guy up on a mountain to come down and give us the rule, to give us the law. No, it's going to be convening with the Holy Spirit on our own and hearing him lay conviction upon us, hearing him lay purpose upon us from within. We don't have to wait on some God to give it to us because the Holy Spirit is constantly within us, even when we don't have the words interceding for us with inward groanings that we cannot understand, always on our behalf, working to our good and ultimately to God's good. This is something we can rejoice in, that we don't have to lean on anybody else. We get to, we get to take that joy, but we also get to have that singular one-on-one relationship with God. Do you understand, church, the joy in this? You have unfiltered access to God. You have a clean connection to God. You're not going to get dropped on the call. You're not going to lose the Wi-Fi signal. You're not going to lose the connection that you have with God unless you yourself choose to turn around and walk away. But the connection is always open, always available. Do you understand that? The ones who, the one, not the ones, the one who spoke the world and the universe into existence, you have a direct connection to him through the Holy Spirit. The one who literally breathed stars out has a direct connection into you. What in this world could hold us back? What in this world could keep God from doing a work in us if he literally lives within us other than our unwillingness to allow it to happen? We have that direct connection, unfiltered access to God. And best of all, almost as an addendum to this amazing prophecy, Jeremiah adds, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So not only do we get to live with God changing us from the inside out, even changing our motivations. Not only do we get to live with direct access to God, but we also get to live in this relationship where we don't have to be reminded of how much of a failure we are. You see, here's what happens when you lean on yourself. And I say this from experience. Here's what happens when you lean on yourself. You spend a lot of time thinking about how big of a failure you are. Anybody else ever get lost in that train of thought? About how many times you failed and how that must look to other people, how that must belittle the sacrifice of Christ. When you look at it, when you live as if it's all up to you, you end up feeling like a failure because on your own you are. We all are. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So when you live like it's up to you, you live as a failure. But there is a better way. There is a better truth. 
God's forgiveness comes without condition. He just gives it to us. Look at this new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about. Jeremiah does not say in verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity if they're obedient to ABC sub point one, two, three. That I will remember their sins no more if they sacrifice this animal in this particular way. That I will remember their sins no more if they can show through the ledger to the Southern Baptist Convention that they were in Sunday school two-thirds of the time this year. No, it's I will forgive their sin, their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. That's a promise from God that's not dependent on you. You get to decide whether you accept it or not. But he's already decided that he's going to do it. How has he decided that? By sending his son Jesus to do it for us. He didn't ask our permission first. He didn't check to see if we wanted it first. He didn't make sure that we signed the contract first. No, he just signed the contract himself in the blood of his son, Jesus. God's forgiveness comes without condition. And I've talked about this verse before because I think it gets misunderstood that God will remember our sin no more. It's, it's not as if God suddenly develops amnesia. That's not what Jeremiah is saying or what God is saying through Jeremiah that, oops, I forgot that past stuff that happened. No, think about the actual phrasing of the, of, the, of the sentence. I will remember their sins no more, declares the Lord. Which means God has that information. God's perfect. He doesn't forget anything. But what happens is he chooses not to think about it anymore. He chooses not to look at us through the lens of sin anymore. Is he has all that information. That's something we can't understand from a human point, is it? Not very well. Very few relationships exist where somebody knows everything you've ever done wrong and never uses it against you. <laughs> not, not, not many relationships like that exist, right? Can I get an amen from the married folk in the house? But it does exist that way with Jesus. He literally knows more than you do because there's stuff you did wrong that you don't even know about. He literally knows everything that you've ever done wrong and what he promises us in his word is that he will choose not to remember that anymore not to dwell on it, not to think about it, but instead to forgive us of it. And then once he's forgiven us, it's done. He really is over it, and he's moving forward. This is the promise that we have in who Jesus is. I'm out of time this morning, but I'm going to do one of those preacher things where I say I'm out of time, but then I'm going to spend a little more time because there's just a few scriptures I want to give you that show this prophecy. Matthew 26, 28 Um, I believe I have it on the screen. Jesus talking, this is during the Lord's Supper. He says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I I have to think that Jesus uses the word covenant here, particularly with Jeremiah's words in mind, that this is the new covenant. Jesus is saying, I'm ushering in this time. And other biblical writers seem to get that same idea as well. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient <clears throat> in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Again, Paul very clearly thinking about that, the letter versus the Spirit, the external versus internal. And then Hebrews, which is just a celebration of the new covenant in a lot of ways and how it is superior to the old covenant. You you can read in chapter 10, you can read throughout the book, but here's one example in chapter 8, verses 6 through 7 in the book of Hebrews. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry 
that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Again, Hebrews taking this idea of new covenant and really fleshing it out, what that means to live in Jesus' perfect ministry. And did you know that biblical scholars believe that the reason why we even call the second part of the Bible the New Testament is because of Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31. It is the new covenant, the New Testament, the old is in the Old Testament. So there is a better way, church. Have you come to the end of yourself? If not, you will. I hope you do quickly. The quicker you realize you don't have what it takes, the quicker you realize it's time to turn to the one who does have what it takes. There is no such thing as self-sufficiency. But just as Paul talks about, what Christ has done is more than sufficient. Here is the big truth that we get to share with the entire world because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is a better way. Somebody else has already plowed that way. Somebody else has already walked that way. We don't have to cut the way. We don't have to cut through the thicket with our machetes on our own. We don't have to find the path on our own. Somebody has already left footsteps and cut the path, and all he is saying to us is, follow me. And we get to do that because he himself, through his spirit, lives within us, transforming us. Not only where we get to be obedient, but we get to joy, rejoice in obedience, rejoice in righteous living. It changes the very nature of our hearts and minds, the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. This is the new covenant. You have access to it. You can live a better way. It's not up to you. Because if it is, we'd all be failures. It is up to what Jesus has already done. And so I'm encouraging you today that if you live a life apart from Jesus, if you've never accepted him as Savior, and you live as if it is all up to you, that the only one who's got your back is you, I'm here to tell you today there is a better way. I can tell you about what that looks like during our time of invitation. And if you know that logically to be the case, you have accepted that into your life, you believe you are following Jesus, perhaps this morning you need that reminder it's not all up to you. Thank God. It's not all up to you. Thank God. It's not all up to us. Instead, it is the one who came and died for us, who changes us from the inside out. Maybe you need that reminder this morning. He's got it. Stop thinking, acting, and living as if it's all up to you, because the only place that ends is failure. But there is victory in leaning in Jesus. Be reminded of that this morning. Be reminded of that every time you think about the resurrection, every time you think about the new covenant, because that is the truth that we have in the new covenant that has been ushered in by Jesus himself. During our time of invitation this morning, again, if you don't know Jesus, I would love to tell you about him right down here. Daniel will be at the back if you would like to talk to him there. If you need to pray about this or anything else, we will be in those respective locations. You can certainly pray right here at the altar. Um, is an act of worship towards God. You can always pray right where you're at. I'll stick around after the service too if you would like somebody to talk to or to pray with. But let's stand together. I'm gonna pray as Bill and Leonard are coming up. And after I do so, please move in whatever way God is calling you to.